I'm Dr. Jack West from City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at islc.org under the news heading. So I'm happy to be here today uh, with Dr. David Spiegel, who is the Chief Scientific Officer at Sarah Cannon Research Institute in Nashville, Tennessee. He's also a medical oncologist with a particular focus on thoracic oncology. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Jack, for having me. So uh, you led an important study on the question of optimal duration of treatment for patients with advanced non-small cell who've done well on immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy without progressing. And you presented that work, uh, the Checkmate 153 trial at ESMO 2017. That suggested a clear benefit to continuing treatment beyond a year of nivolumab. A year later, Roy Herbst presented long-term data on the Keynote 10 study. And that demonstrated that in a cohort of very similar patients who stopped pembrolizumab after two years without progression uh, and then stopped, two-thirds continued to show no progression for up to a year or beyond that without uh, progressing and still going. Uh, how do you reconcile the differences and what's your own current practice for optimal duration? Yeah, well, I, I wish I could tell you we know the answer, but but we don't. Um, I think what's nice about uh, the Keynote 10 long-term follow-up, and, and actually this has been shown in other, you know, I think the, the Keynote 001 study also has had now some long-term follow-up in patients with melanoma. When, when you achieve deep responses, in this case, complete responses, I think in lung or melanoma, it's likely that those patients can stop and be watched. And, and I think that's what we're seeing now with the pembrolizumab long-term data, that if you achieve a deep response, even early, even, even if you only get a limited amount of therapy, what we would think would be less than what we would expect, less than a year, less than two years, those patients can probably do well long-term. Not, now, not all of them are gonna do well, but the numbers suggest it could be as high as 80 or 90% can do long-term well, remain disease-free, and, and have complete responses that are maintained. The trial we presented um, was kind of an interesting study. It actually was a trial designed not to look just at stopping or not stopping, but to look at a number of other safety issues and feasibility issues. Um, because you may may remember when this trial was getting off the ground, nivolumab wasn't yet approved and then was approved as the study was being conducted. That trial had a signal, and that's the way I like to describe it, that if you take somebody with lung cancer in the refractory setting, give them nivolumab for a year, and if they're not progressing, so they have disease control, either a response or stable disease, and then randomize them at that point to either stop and be watched or to continue on nivolumab for another year, that study suggests that staying on nivolumab, you do better in terms of progression-free survival. And there was even a hint for overall survival. But as soon as I tell you that, I'll tell you that this study is limited in, in a million ways. It's, it's very tiny. Um, there, there still is longer-term follow-up to see how patients are doing once they get re-exposed on the control arm to nivolumab. And, and there appear to be some people who can regain responses. I think at first blush, you would say staying on is better than coming off. And that's, that's, those results kind of, kind of gave me pause because I wanted to stop. And now this study is suggesting maybe I shouldn't stop. But then I see, I see these other sets of data coming out with other drugs. And I think, you know, everybody's different. 
It probably depends how well you're doing. If you have a deep response, it's probably okay to stop. And if you're somewhere in between where you just have disease control or minor responses, those patients may need to stay on therapy. But at the end of the day, we just don't know the answer. Yeah, I, I think that uh, non-progression is probably a pretty heterogeneous group, that non-progression could be people with very modest uh, but modest responses or stable disease, but obviously we also see patients who have a dramatic, very good response, and these patients may behave very differently. In your study, uh, though, there, there was not any clear difference between the patients who had high PDL1 and those who did right, not. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, it's just trying to figure out things that are the most obvious ones. It's well, and then, and then you have weird things happen, and I, I like telling about this, this woman I care for. Um, I, I take care of this woman who is in her um, 50s, was a heavy smoker, but stopped smoking about five years ago, and, and, and had advanced non-small cell lung cancer came to see us with a new diagnosis, and I recommended a study with immunotherapy as her first-line therapy. We gave that treatment to her on study, and after one dose, she had an elevation in her liver test. Her tran it was transaminitis that uh, forced her to, to have a hold before she could get retreated. That hold lasted eight weeks. She was asymptomatic. At eight weeks, she came back in the office and we'll just call her MT and Mrs. T said, um, what do we do now? And I said, well, your, your labs are better. We can go back on, on the study. And I said, but you look great. Maybe, maybe we should take pictures again to see what's going on. So we took scans and she basically had a complete response. She, she hated coming in anyway. And, and she said, she said, well, why do we need to do anything? And I said, you know what, Miss T, I, I, I've never done this before, but in somebody with advanced lung cancer, we're not used to just saying, let's watch you, but you look great and we'll watch you. And Jack, uh, just recently, it's been um, 30 months. She has no cancer that I can find on scans. And I only gave her one dose of therapy. I ultimately went back and looked, uh, we profiled the tumor and the tumor mutation burden was 115. And as you know from, from other studies, Checkmate 227, there's a suggestion that the higher mutation burden could, could predict who would do best with immunotherapy. So that's 115 mutations per megabase. Wouldn't that be a great study? Take people who, you could say any cancer, but lung cancer, and, and set some threshold that's high, like 50 or 75 or 100 TMB, and give them one dose. Or give them something, if that makes everybody too nervous, give them a dose every three months, as long as you watch them closely. What if that was a way to treat cancer? Well, it's, I've had some other patients who lead me to question any absolute conclusion like we should keep people on indefinitely or even for a very extended period of time. I've had a patient or two who runs into problems with nephritis. And, yeah, but you have to stop. And you stop and... And I've followed the approach of, well, let's just see if the scan looks worse, then our backs are against the wall and we'll restart it. But otherwise, no. And months and months go by and soon it's a year or longer. And some of these patients have received very few treatments. You could count them on one hand. So that, that really underscores that. I had another patient who had been on the initial uh, Checkmate uh, 057 trial right. and, uh, and we were 
thinking about having her continue indefinitely in the wake of, of your presentation, but she was having some cumulative uh, musculoskeletal issues, which frankly I see it more than right. you might think in patients who are on for a long period of time. So I think it's not something people go into the ER for, but you see a fair bit in patients sure. who are on for a long time. And they were very informed and thought, well, you know, but one year is different from being on for two or three. And they stopped and she had a PET scan that looked great and a couple of more years have gone by and she still has no evidence of disease and is one an amazing responder. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, what's different from our usual approach to treating cancer is with immunotherapy, you're not, the, the therapies we give don't actually themselves treat cancer, right? They, they flip your immune system on, your immune system does the, does the work. And so that, that gets to how much do you need to get the job done? In the case of the patient I mentioned, did we, did we activate her immune system in such a profound way that it eradicated cancer, or at least put her into a deep CR? I don't know that she's cured. Put her into a deep CR. Is her immune system still turned on and that's it's providing some form of surveillance? Or was it just a three-month or six-month kind of control that she needed to, to get this into remission? I don't know. But I, I, I believe the future for duration is gonna come down to some kind of measure of a person's immune status. You know, that we'll be able to do some assay to know if you should reprime your patient. Are they, are they, are they in good standing? You know, is cancer in control? And do we think their immune system is at a high level that it, it can keep things in control? Or do they need to be reprimed, say like we do with Pneumovax or flu vaccines every year? Yeah. So I, I, you know, we're not there, um, but this idea of just treating people for years with these very expensive drugs that have toxicities, I mean, I don't think that's realistic, you know, for, for large populations. Yeah, and I also think that on a global scale, but even in the US, the cost is an issue. Oh, and, and, it's unbelievable. I mean, this is, especially if we're doing this and it eventually becomes more of a ritual than a true need. We've been here before. I mean, when you and I were, uh, you know, I don't want to, talk about how, how old we are, but when, when you and I were younger, I mean, we had these same questions with other drugs, right? We had the same questions with uh, trastuzumab used in breast cancer. We had these same questions in colorectal cancer with bevacizumab. You know, we, we, we find good drugs, they're expensive, and you kind of don't, don't know when to stop them. Yeah, but, and again, we have patients who ask, well, I'm responding really well on my ALK inhibitor, my EGFR inhibitor, can I stop? And right. I have to say, well, no. Yeah, those you, make you a little more nervous. And that's, no, I, I think it's totally different. They yeah. say, well, it's like being on insulin. Your blood sugar's great, but you don't stop because of this. You're doing well because you're on this. Not, doesn't mean that if you stop it, it'll all stay that way. But, so these are I, fundamentally I, I, different. I'd love to see a study. We, we've been talking about pitching this. I don't know that anybody would take us up on it, where you get dosed, say every every twelve weeks. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, as long as you're watched closely, you get dosed. Maybe we select only the highest expressors or high TMB for this initial stage, and just see what happens. See if uh, see if you can get a high proportion of people who need very little therapy and get disease control. You know, it's, it's easy. And I've eventually evolved into that with several of my patients who. You know, beyond a year or 18 months or two years, it's tempting to just think, uh, I'm not sure if this is just alligator repellent at this point, yeah, not right. doing anything. And, uh, you know, you'd be doing just as well and you maybe don't want to stop completely. So you take a, 
a halfway approach and you start an interval of every four weeks or six weeks or something yeah. and, and as a maintenance therapy. And I think until we know more, it's it's as reasonable as any other approach. So to be clear, you don't think that there's some fundamental difference between nivolumab and pembrolizumab or the populations being very different? <laughs> well, I, you know, I think we all agree that, you know, melanoma is not lung cancer, is not renal cell carcinoma. And lately, I've started to question whether some of these checkpoint inhibitors are different, right? Because we're seeing results from studies that look pretty, pretty similar in their designs, and yet the results are very different, thinking of drugs like nivolumab and pembrolizumab. Yeah. You know, at face value, I'd say, boy, these drugs should not be different. But, you know, there may be real differences. I mean, we, we kind of went through this, too, with the TKIs, you know, that it could be a dosing issue. It could be it could be something more more basic in, in the structure of these drugs. But, you know, th there might there might actually be differences. I don't think that way clinically. It, it just happens to be I tend to use pembrolizumab solely in the first line setting. And nowadays, because I'm doing that, I don't really think about off-study nivolumab or atezolizumab or or, or drivalumab, any other drug in the refractory setting, because I've already exposed them to immunotherapy in the first-line setting. But right. Yeah, it's it, it's. I will tell you though, um, depending on the day I'm in clinic, I I you probably see different ways I handle duration depending right. on the patient. But I think that's appropriate when we just don't have enough data <laughs> right. to say. Um, and I agree that a couple of years ago, I would have said these drugs are really highly likely to be completely interchangeable. And I've been inclined to walk that back, not to say that I think they're still more similar than different, but we have seen some themes come up as, as consistent patterns that suggest that they are not as interchangeable as we might have thought once. So I'm more hesitant about that. In terms of following the setting of acquired resistance. You have someone who did respond and now they're progressing. Do you have any practice in terms of adding an immune-based therapy or chemotherapy or have you seen any good results with switching from one checkpoint inhibitor to another, which I think is done a lot in practice, but uh, not with good data? Yeah, I. so I, I haven't I haven't done that. I don't think so. Where, where I've switched somebody, I, I switched one one gentleman who was on a study with a Tezo, who had to come off that study um, because I was giving radiation therapy to a a solitary lesion, and then we ended up going back on nivolumab instead of a Tezo. That's the only time I've ever switched drugs. But he was he was already being maintained well, and we switched. Um, I don't know. I I don't think it's as rampant. Um, as I thought it might be, but I'm also speaking without any data. I, I don't think that uh, colleagues out there are doing a lot of sequential different checkpoint inhibitors, but it might be happening. Um, I could see it happening in some settings where, say, you treat somebody with chemo, immunotherapy, or immunotherapy up front. They go some period of time before cancer progresses. Maybe they have a, they have a treatment-free period of six months or 12 months. They recur, and I could see doctors going back to either the same or different drug. I've heard stories of people uh, talking, at least, of adding a CTLA-4 antibody like ipilimumab to whatever whatever they're on. I don't I don't necessarily agree with that, but I, I'm sure people are trying stuff like that. For me, when somebody's progressing on chemo, immuno, or immuno, 
unfortunately, I'm stuck with kind of the old things we're used to. I just kind of follow follow the um, the path we've always followed, which is the next thing in line is probably going to be more chemotherapy if you can't get them on a study. Um, as you know well, the big question is, can you rescue or restore sensitivity to immunotherapy by adding something to what you're on? So can you add um, an, an anti-TIGIT drug or a LAG3 antibody to a checkpoint inhibitor like PD-1 or pd one and, and restore or, or, um, or, or bring about a response you didn't have before? We don't know that. Those studies are in progress. And so far in the last two years, I mean, haven't you been shocked we haven't found another another way to restore or rescue a patient? I and mean, with all the drugs in development, I, you know, obviously epicatastat was the biggest disappointment, but it's interesting that another, another immune-based strategy coupled with the checkpoint inhibitor has not been successful so far. Yeah, I have felt that we were going to have fits and starts along the way anyway, that we had really an unsustainable chain of great results. And I, <laughs> right. I don't, I don't think this meant that every test, every trial was going to be positive. I would also say that, you know, it's been years. And the fact that we haven't learned that adding, uh, adding a CTLA-4 inhibitor or uh, switching from a PD-1 to a PD-L1 inhibitor is, is a big help. Considering that this has been done in many people uh, over the last few years, the fact that I don't know of any even anecdotal case of it working yeah. means that there's probably very little reason to be optimistic about it right now. Yeah, I, uh, you're making me depressed. I mean, it I... Doesn't mean we it, won't have yeah, other successes. They're just not going to yeah, come why, why every has, three months. Why hasn't it happened? Um, I... You know, it's not for a lack of trying. I mean, there's been a number of trials in progress to, to look at these next combinations. It's, uh, but you're right. We 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 don't have biomarkers. We we still we still don't even know the best way to measure benefit. You know, we think it's imaging with standard CT scans. We don't know duration, as you've you've brought up in the beginning. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things we don't know. We I guess we not that we have great foresight, but. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't a surprise when you have a rush of new therapies and excitement that it was going to bring on more questions than, than answers. But I, I still, I think part of it, I, I still am optimistic. We're babes in the woods with this. I yeah, mean, yeah. we've only been working with immunotherapy for three, four years in earnest. Yeah. And so it's totally transformed oncology. I think it's naive uh, to, to think that we were going to have it all figured out in the first three or four years. Uh, there's... There's tons more. We just discovered a whole new dimension of oncology treatment. And I'd say every week or two, I learn something new about a toxicity. I mean, somebody, you know, a partner comes up to me and says, have you ever seen this? And I'll say, no, actually, I haven't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so, and more, I think we're going to learn more about, you know, the associations or lack of that between uh, the, the toxicities that patients experience and which patients benefit the most. And, yeah, yeah. You know, people are questioning whether there is a real direct association or whether it's just the guarantee time bias of the people are on treatment longer and that means them they're more subject to, to side effects. So anyway, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, uh, sure. You know, it's an exciting field. We're going to be learning more. And uh, although we've had great successes, we're still, uh, there's still a big role for judgment here. 
Yeah, a lot, a lot more needs to be done for sure. But thanks, thanks again for having me. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Visit the news section on IASLC.org for more lung cancer considered podcasts. And please like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud and share them with your friends and colleagues. This is Dr. Jack West. Until next time.